Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Jeffrey Smith, helps to topple dictators for a living. His organization, Vanguard Africa, is very new, but they already have one success under their belt, the peaceful transition of power from the Gambia's longtime ruler. He now has a sight set on Africa's second longest ruling leader, Paul Bia of Cameroon, and we kick off with a discussion of the situation in Cameroon before pivoting to a longer conversation about how he got into this line of work. We have some great digressions along the way, including about Zimbabwe, some of the deficiencies of the NGO community in D.C., and of course, the Gambia. I had Jeff on the podcast about a year ago to discuss the situation in the Gambia in the run-up to the elections there in December, and I had a couple of listeners reach out to me and ask me to interview him for one of these longer profile pieces. So here you go, and I am glad I did. I'm glad you reached out to me as well. This is a great conversation. Please do email me anytime with what is on your mind, and if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And do be sure to share this podcast with your friends, families, neighbors, colleagues, post to social media, use the hashtag Global Dispatches. And you know, we're entering the third year of this podcast, and it is amazing how far we have come. And and I say we, because this really is a community. One thing I keep hearing from you out there is that this show helps keep you connected to the issues, the ideas that are relevant to foreign policy today that interest you intellectually, that make you curious about the world, and we're having a conversation. And and thank you for being a part of this conversation. And of course, as always, you can send me an email via the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com or just hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Thank you so much for listening, for being a continued listener of the show. And if you're a new listener, welcome to the club. Okay, now here is Jeffrey Smith. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think Cameroon is is one of those countries in sub-Saharan Africa that doesn't get the attention that you know I and, and many others think it deserves. One of the ways in which Cameroon, over the decades, really has been able to sort of uh, operate under the radar is increasingly President Paul Bia, who's effectively been in power since 1975. Right, he's like the uh, second longest 
current ruler in the world? Am I am I right, or is he the longest at this point? Depending on 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 what metric you use, uh, he's he's the second longest ruling leader behind Obiang of Equatorial Guinea. Uh, so he was elected president officially in 1982, but for all intents and purposes, he's really been you know the the head of state and operating with um with almost absolute control since 1975 and you know he's he's typically in that echelon of you know Africa's dinosaur presidents along with Mugabe along with Obiang uh, and certainly Angola's uh Eduardo dos Santos who is apparently stepping down uh this year but uh one of the ways in which Paul Dia uh has has really been able to to fly under the radar and um, not necessarily receive the the condemnation that his government has really deserved over the years, and certainly uh, over the past year, with many of the incidents happening, is is he's really been able to position himself as a bastion of stability in an otherwise unstable region. And if you look in Chad, for instance, Idris Deby, who's been in power again for over two decades, ha- has really done a, a masterful job of that as well. And both of them, and and several others several other heads of state have really been able to use the, the post 9-11 world and their bulwark against extremism uh, and, and, and so-called terrorism uh, to really, uh, you know, avoid some of the criticisms they may have otherwise uh, received from, from the United States and, and other world leaders. So he's been, I've actually been to Cameroon. Uh, I was there about five years ago. And one thing that struck me was, you know, there, it does seem to be kind of this like cult of personality built up around him, at least in the capital. And, and I was there as part of like a health reporting trip. Like all the hospitals are named after him or, or his wife. And it's, it's one of those things where like you, it, it is, uh, he seems to want the sort of like the, 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 the people to kind of continue to pay tribute to him. Absolutely no. It's 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 a very it's it's a very stereotypical blueprint strongman society, you know, uh, and and he th- that's the currency with which the the government has has been able to operate over over three decades now. Insider challenges um, to his position have frequently been silenced. Another issue that many people don't necessarily pay attention pay attention to, unfortunately, is the, is the number of political prisoners uh, in Cameroon. If someone uh, you know, overtly challenges his authority. They're they're swiftly uh, they're swiftly dealt with. And in two thousand and eight, many people might remember he abolished term limits so he can continue to run for reelection uh, indefinitely. And another issue uh, related to that is he really hasn't identified or really started to groom uh, an obvious successor. Um, so Cameroon uh, elections are upcoming. Next year, I think technically they are scheduled for October. Many anticipate early elections to be called, given the unrest that is taking place. Uh, but for all intents and purposes, he's going to be the the ruling party nominee uh, once again. Well, what's interesting to me is that you know Cameroon, sort of not in a way that's dissimilar, I suppose, to Ethiopia or even Rwanda, is where you have these kind of authoritarian leaders, but they still kind of play nice with the international community in in important ways, not just on security things, but on development and health issues. Like I was there as with like uh, I think it was with a branch of the UN doing some reporting on on health issues, and you know there was I think this genuine um, degree of of freedom that these NGOs have to pursue they're kind of very narrow specific health agendas definitely uh and, and you 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 hit the nail right on the head it, it's very similar to uh other authoritarian contexts like ethiopia and rwanda sort of the two uh what i would identify as you know the development darlings as there's as they're oftentimes mm-hmm. positioned here in the u.s where ngos who are working on 
very innocuous development issues, whether it's health or education, typically have free reign uh, to, to do oftentimes very good work. But once you get into the political realm or you start working on human rights issues or freedom of expression issues, or God forbid, you happen to be an independent journalist who is critical of the government, then then the gloves come off. Uh, and we see this over and over again um, in Cameroon, certainly Ethiopia being the, you know, being Africa's uh, top jailer of journalists and, and in Rwanda too, where essentially Freedom of expression, free speech, and independent journalism just does not exist inside the country. So are, are you guys working in Cameroon right now? Yeah, so right now uh, we're doing quite a bit of work, as as you may have noticed, um, trying to raise a level of awareness about the human rights abuses and democratic backsliding that is taking place in the country. You know, bringing that home here to the United States, talking to policymakers here, convincing them as to why it's important, which is a very... Uh, very tall uh, task, given the fact that the United States and, and policymakers and decision makers here, number one, in this current administration, um, Africa features very, very low uh, on the foreign policy radar and typically has, but even more so now. Uh, what is more, the United States, you know, they prefer the, the status quo, uh, even, you know, in in spite of the fact that, you know, protesters are being shot and killed in the streets in, in northwest Cameroon, that uh, journalists are being charged and sentenced to to lengthy prison terms for, for terrorism, for simply doing their job. Um, you know, it's been a very tepid response. The United States thus far has really just called for restraint and dialogue. And, and that's as far as they've been willing to go. And and really, that, that has been, unfortunately, the case for, for many years. As I alluded to before, Cameroon's status as a U.S. security partner uh, is, is first and foremost. And that really started uh, in the early 2000s um, when Cameroon held a temporary seat on the U.N. Security Council. Uh, the, the W. Bush administration lobbied Cameroon very heavily to abstain on uh, the war resolution in Iraq. So they were considered uh, a very staunch ally. They were part of the coalition of the willing. They they were, and and currently, you know, many people might not know this as well, but currently there are, I, I believe, there's about 300 American soldiers uh, and a drone base that are stationed in uh, northern Cameroon near Nigeria, dealing with the the Boko Haram insurgency. And it's probably fair to say though that you know it's not just W. Bush. You know, uh, when Obama had his big Africa summit, Cameroon and Paul Bia and his wife, who is like a very re- recognizable figure, Chantel. Uh, what, yeah, Chantel. Chantel Bia kind of caused a lot of. Um, 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 journalists who are not familiar with Africa to sort of take note of, of her and her hairstyle, which is like a, a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so, so there was like a lot of some media attention around his visit to the White House, you know, a few years ago as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the going back to August 2014 in the, in the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit, I think mm-hmm. many people applauded that effort uh, by the Obama administration to to. You know, to engage more uh, directly and in a collective setting with African heads of state. But there was, you know, lots of criticism that I think was well earned, particularly at the time is when, um, you know, I started ramping up my work on the Gambia, for instance, and seeing uh, an incredibly abusive, highly authoritarian, repressive leader like Yaya Jame, for instance, walking down the red carpet and being embraced by the United States president, but that, but also, you know, Paul Bia, President Obiang of Equatorial Guinea, uh, Haile Mariam from Ethiopia. It's, it's, it's deeply, deeply problematic because what happens is um, these leaders then 
go home and use this as uh, a propaganda platform to essentially tell their people that the United States, the strongest country in the world, stands behind us and stands behind me. Um, and there's there's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to continue to abuse your rights with impunity and the world and the United States is going to stand behind me. So are you working for specific clients in there? No, we're not working for uh, specific clients. Uh, we, we have um, some funding through personal donations to uh, start talking about the upcoming elections and really starting to highlight um, the many human rights abuses that are occurring in the country, but have certainly uh, seen an uptick, uh, particularly you know, really starting uh, in October, November of last year when the Anglophone crisis um, kicked into high gear in the country. Mm-hmm. I would suspect that most listeners are not uh, aware of the Anglophone crisis, but basically it, it's, there is a minority of the country's Anglophone. The majority is, is French, although it's, it's, it's a fairly small majority French, right? Correct. And, and this, again, like so many uh, problems that we, that we see across the continent, unfortunately, dates back to colonialism and the, and the arbitrary dividing blinds that, um, you know, Western powers at the time deemed in their interests to, to, to cut up. And Anglophones in uh, Cameroon have been historically marginalized. They consider themselves, um, you know, really on the short end of, of the national distribution of resources. Uh, and the, the government uh, in the capital has, has really marginalized that part of the population, mainly in Northwest and in Southwest Cameroon. So largely, uh, you know, overall politics in Cameroon are, are multi-ethnic and um, depends on President Bia's ability to control the flow of resources. And what we have seen is the deliberate um, marginalization of Anglophone speaking Cameroonians. And this has had, you know, profound consequences. And we've really seen uh, uh, that exacerbated over, over the, the past and, several months. And they cut off internet for like most of the Anglophone regions for like months, right? For months. Yeah. Uh, and that actually... That's great. Yeah, I saw, we wrote a story about that on you on Dispatch because I was just like, that, was, that just seemed kind of nuts. I hadn't seen that. And somehow it came across my trends and maybe by following you on Twitter. I don't know. So I yeah. signed a... Uh, a Frank, uh, so I signed a reporter to, to, to write a piece on that, but it was, yeah, it was and I, fascinating I remember, and kind of nuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember reading that and, and, and thanks for doing that. It's, and it was, and that was one of the issues, uh, that we at Vanguard Africa were really trying to highlight to bring back our internet campaign, uh, there which you was, go. Your, your, your lobbying worked apparently. <laughs> um, you <laughs> I, know, didn't, I, I didn't even know it was you. No, I really think the the international attention certainly helped, but I think perhaps the most prominent issue that led uh, the BIA government to to restore internet was the economic hit uh, that the country was taking. Northwest and Southwest Cameroon are uh, incredibly vibrant business and and tech hubs, uh, and the, the the shutting down and the the blocking of the internet really had a profound um, negative effect on the economy. But certainly the the shame that that came along with the international attention that this issue started to get that you know President Paul Bia and his and his regime are not used to uh, certainly helped and again you know and I think this speaks to a broader issue the fact that internet shutdowns are becoming commonplace in in Africa right now another issue uh, almost right next door in Congo Brazzaville the internet's been shut down for for almost two weeks now and, and not really I signed another reporter on that one in fact as we speak. Fantastic. And I, and yeah. I think, um, you know, it goes to, you know, like so many authoritarian trends on the continent, this has really 
this really started was enabled and abetted by authorities in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. You know, they've really become pros at this. And, and other authoritarian leaders from Cameroon to Congo Brazzaville uh, to Gabon during their elections to Gambia during their elections last year um, and in Uganda, again, in elections last year, they've really picked up on this and, and know uh, have learned that they can get away with it. And I think it's an unfortunate consequence, uh, again, of the United States, uh, just as one example, of taking a step back and not necessarily, um, you know, pushing transparency and, and accountability and, and good governance and, and democratic leadership. So I'd love to switch gears and learn more about you and how you got into this line of work, how you became interested in these issues. I mean, you came on my radar during the Gambia crisis, and we spoke probably like three months before the elections and things were really up in the air. And then, uh, of course, um, your your guy won. Uh, so congratulations. And and uh, but we'll, we'll we'll get to that. because uh, That's a really important moment, I think. Sure. Uh, in which you and your organization became on a lot of people's radars. I had um, followed you before then, of course, but um, and it's actually a really important moment, I think, in, in African history as as well. So we'll discuss that. But first, I want to learn more about how you got to that point, how you got to sort of be helping the, the toppling of longstanding African dictators. So where are you from? Where were you born? So I was born uh, in New England in a in a small state called Connecticut, which I'm. Oh, I've heard of it. I too yeah. was born in a state called Connecticut. <laughs> so I actually interested. Where, where? What part? So this is the funny part, or, or the interesting part. I think I grew up in uh, a small town that no one has ever heard of called Lisbon, Connecticut. It's actually one of the oldest incorporated towns. Uh, in Connecticut. It was founded in the, I believe, in the mid-17th century by, unsurprisingly, the Portuguese with the name Lisbon. Um, but, but What county is it? Is that in Litchfield County? Uh, it would be in New London County. New London County. That's the other side of the state. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The other no reason I, I had not heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, so it's the, what I describe it, what I describe it to people from the outside is it's the, it's the red state part of Connecticut that that no one knows exists. So very, very rural, backwoods. I grew up on a farm. Uh, So if if you were to put it in today's context, it is a veritable Trump, you know, stronghold uh, where -hmm. where his message of, um, you know, working class marginalization really resonated and he had an upsurge of support. So really um, the the rural, uh, very rural backwoods part of Connecticut that most people don't associate with um, uh, the very liberal blue state that, that most people think Connecticut is. And wealthy. Yeah, and wealthy, but not certainly not the area I grew not, up. Not I, mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I grew up, you know, within a essentially in a one parent household. We grew up in, uh, you know, essentially a house that was one big room for the first 18 years of my life uh, before I went to college uh, and uh, very, very modest beginning to, to say the least. Well, how did you, I mean, at that age, growing up in the circumstances you did, I mean, were you kind of globally interested, globally aware? No, I wasn't. <laughs> so um, I, I went to college initially, interestingly, at the, the University of Connecticut as a as a radio broadcasting communications major. So, Well, that's why you sound so good, Jeff. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. No, so that's, that's what I went to college for. I, I wanted to be, you know, a, a radio DJ. So I was doing that. I had a radio show, um, you know, playing all the cool, you know, indie rock bands of the day, the Pixies, the Posies, uh, you know, Nirvana. Uh, and, and I, as part of my general education requirements, had to take uh, a political science course. Um, and I ended up taking it with uh, a very old 
academic who focused his entire research on Mauritius um, and the the politics of, of Mauritius. And I got really fascinated with that. And very long story short, at the end of, of five years um, as an undergrad, I ended up with a political science major and a human rights major, the, the, the latter of which I helped create while I was there and completely uh, set aside the, the communications radio broadcasting aspect of my uh, uh, huh. career. So before that even got started, uh, it, it ended, unfortunately. But maybe someday, maybe in my, yeah. my retirement, I can, I can rekindle that. <laughs> Well, so how did you, uh, you know, so, so you became interested in, in this via Mauritius, which is, which is really interesting, but, um, how did you, what was your next move? Like, how did you start to, to sort of nurture that, that interest further? So the really big seminal moment that I, I always hearken back to and, and really remember like it was yesterday, and this is, um, you know, quite relevant for today, given the fact that he just passed away. But I, I had the chance to meet Ahmed Kathrada when I was an undergrad. I, I, I volunteered for, uh, so the University of Connecticut had um, a UNESCO office on campus, which was run by uh, Dr. Ami Amara Otunu, who, is, uh, uh, who came to the United States during the Idi Amin regime as a, uh, as a you know, in political exile. Um, and I started working with him, volunteering with, with the UNESCO organization and met Ahmed Kathrada and, and so many others. And, and he was, I got to spend, you know, a, a week with him. Um, and, and who is he for people who don't know? So Ahmed Kathrada was one of the, you know, the, the, the seminal figures in the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, uh, was, uh, in Robben Island, uh, incarcerated there with, with Nelson Mandela and Robert Sabukwe and all the heroes, of the, of the liberation struggle in South Africa. And he really, um, really opened my eyes to, uh, the, these sorts of issues and how, you know, even post colonialism and post independence for many of these African states, a lot of the, the human rights issues and, uh, you know, issues of democracy and good governance were lacking. Uh, and what was he doing in Connecticut? So at that time, he was a professor, a visiting professor at Michigan State University, and we invited him to Connecticut uh, for a human rights conference. We invited him. Uh, Samantha Power came. It was, it was right after she had just written uh, A Problem from Hell, so I had the chance to meet her. And then Ben Ferenz, uh, who, whom you might know is the oldest uh, prosecutor from the Nuremberg trials, came to that conference. He's the youngest well. of the time, but he's the, the last living one. He's in yeah, his hundreds. I, yeah. yeah, I believe yeah. he's 100, 101. He's still oh. giving interviews. I, 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 it's my intention to, to try to reach out. No, he's he's phenomenal. They, uh, I believe, sixty minutes just did a recent profile yeah. of him. So I had the chance to to meet the three of them, um, and and of course my professors uh, at UConn really sort of opened my eyes to to these broader, bigger struggles that um, you know. And, and I just I I got the bug and I and I got hooked and and wanted to to get involved in this in this type of work. And, well, so how did you end up getting involved then? Like, what was your? How do you kind of land an actual you know paying job in this line of work? Uh, completely by luck. Uh, I'm not going to lie. To this day, I still don't understand how I got my my first job in this field. So it all started. I was actually, I ended up getting my undergraduate degree. Um, took a year off and did social work uh, back in Connecticut. I was a I was a youth mentor for young adults with mental health issues and, and addiction issues. Uh, so after a year um, of doing that, which was 
incredibly burned me out, as you might imagine. It's it's incredibly heart wrenching work. Um, I applied for for graduate schools to a number of places. Uh, the University of Connecticut ended up giving me a, a full scholarship, so of course I chose to go back there. And they also at that time had a really um, a really great burgeoning human rights uh, core curriculum of which I took part in during grad school. And it was during that time that on a on a total whim. Uh, I applied for an internship uh, in South Africa at a think tank uh, called the Institute for Democracy um, and somehow landed that position. Uh, I worked in, in South Africa for about six months. And during that time, it was really it was at the height of the post-election crisis in Zimbabwe um, when when Mugabe essentially lost at the polls and and thousands upon thousands of Zimbabweans were, were streaming across the border. And that was when we started seeing an uptick of xenophobic violence in many of the townships. Mm-hmm. Uh, that That's what, like 2008, there. right? Around 2008, then? 2009. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And Morgan Changarai was, was the um, opposition leader. Correct. Uh, and then, and then the, the prime minister under the government of, of national mm-hmm. unity. So, and, and really, so that time really opened my eyes to the, the regional implications of democratic backsliding in Mm-hmm. single countries you know in the because because you did have yeah you you had these like flows of of refugees pardon me the uh the movements of refugees exactly. uh over borders i don't like using water metaphors to describe yeah, refugees exactly and, and um, so during that time um I, I i my contract came to an end again on a whim applied for a job at the national endowment for democracy uh here in washington as a research associate and somehow again, landed that job and, and my career sort of took off after that. And again, I, 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 to this day, I'm not sure how, how I got those jobs. It was, it was completely by luck and certainly, certainly not by my resume up to that point, which was entirely barren and, and not at all uh, impressive by, by any standard. Well, so how did you end up starting Vanguard then? So Vanguard Africa is really the genesis of, you know, over a decade of, of sort of working on pro-democracy and human rights issues, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And I, you know, I knew we were having an impact and, and we were doing good work at my previous organizations, but I, I became increasingly frustrated with the fact that I felt as if we were constantly being, number one, reactive to problems and crises and not addressing the root causes of uh, those. What, what would be like an example of, of, being reactive in a situation. So, you know, being reactive to a situation, a good example would be, you know, condemning uh, an entirely flawed rigged uh, election after the fact and not doing the groundwork beforehand to, to, you know, a number of things, shedding us an international spotlight on, on the election, why it is important for that country, why it's important for the region and for the United States. So putting it in other people's best interests of, of why they should care and why they should pay attention. And I felt like we weren't addressing the root causes of the social, political, humanitarian crises uh, that, that routinely pop up. And to me, through my work and, and, you know, having dialogue and, and meeting people across the continent was the, was the lack of ethical, accountable, transparent leadership at the very top. So Vanguard Africa is really the, the out, you know, the, the, the outgrowth of that wanting to, to shed a spotlight on highly repressive countries that don't get the attention they deserve, using that spotlight to advocate for free, fair, fully transparent elections. And then also in the ideal scenario, um, work with, uh, you know, pro-reform leaders that can make a profoundly positive change uh, in their countries and, and by extension, um, you know, the continent writ large. I suppose, how did then, did you just like assemble a team and the wherewithal and the capacity to just start the an NGO dedicated to these 
ideas and, and these ideals, if you're saying that previously, like the kind of NGO apparatus is built up around being reactive to, to events. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a hard sell. It definitely um, wasn't easy by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, what I, you know, the, 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 the environment in which I grew up in was, you know, always being the underdog and, and wanting to, you know, wanting to, to fight against uh, the, the, the powers that be or, or these highly entrenched power structures. And, and it was really selling people on, on that idea, but then also the massive void that exists um, to, to do this type of work and, and being in Washington, DC uh, became apparent to me um, and, and highly evident. And, you know, there's no shortage of public relations and, and lobby firms that are paid millions of dollars in some instances to work for the most highly autocratic, repressive governments and, and leaders in the world. And there really wasn't uh, an organization or a platform or a vehicle um, out there that existed to work solely with pro-reform idealistic candidates or, 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 or visionary leaders, whether they were in civil society, whether they wanted to be in government, whether they, they currently were in government. Uh, and and that's, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and that's what we've set out to do through well, that's through interesting. So it's like a reaction to the fact that, you know, you know, a government like even a government like Sudan right now is, you know, paying lobbying firms, you know, mil or, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month at least right. to promote their image. Uh, and there's no organization entity that's like out there trying to, you know, one, like promote the, the image or, or promote the interests of like the opposition movements in these countries. Exactly. And, and interestingly that the lobby firm that you're talking about is John Boehner's uh, lobbying firm <laughs> that is, that is now um, on the payroll of the, the Bashir. The that's, that's John Bashir Boehner's. Government. Oh man. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and, and th like, again, there, there, there's no, th I should say these, this is, this is a bipartisan thing too. Cause you have like Lanny Davis, he was uh, you know, a Podesta former Clinton group, yeah. yeah, the Podesta group who, who take on these, these kind of God awful clients. Right. And, and, and another sort of, seminal moment in the, you know, the formation of this in my mind and now in its actual existence. Um, you know, I, I won't name names, but, you know, I was offered uh, a job by one of these groups and, you know, you look at their, their client list and it's, um, and I might give it away, but it, you know, it's Azerbaijan, it's Egypt, it's Ethiopia, it's Equatorial Guinea. And, and there's no way, um, that I could ever justify to myself, to my friends and, and to the activists and, um, you know, political political and civil activists that I've worked with, uh, particularly in Africa over the past decade, there's no way I could justify to them, you know, essentially turning my backs uh, on them and, and their life's work. And uh, I couldn't justify it to myself either. So I wanted to... The money's know, so good. The money is good, but, you know, that doesn't... Uh, <laughs> um, that that that, uh, that certainly is, is no... Um, you know, it does not compensate for the... For the for the amazing, incredibly brave and, and courageous people that we have the opportunity to work at, um, at Vanguard Africa. How did you get, uh, Joe Trippi on, on board? And for people who are not familiar, Joe Trippi, um, was a sort of avant-garde campaign manager for, uh, Howard Dean in the 2004 election cycle and yep. was kind of credited with introducing a new kind of online activism to, to American yeah. politics and to the world. But he's kind of a, a well-known figure among political nerds. So how did you kind of get him on board? Yeah. And so he actually, he also, we were talking about this before, the, the, the election in Zimbabwe in 2008, in which the opposition leader, Morgan Changarai, won, uh, but Robert Mugabe refused to step down. So Joe Trippi and his firm actually ran uh, Morgan Changarai's campaign. Um, mm. 
And so Joe and I met through Zimbabwe. We we had a mutual friend. Uh, she's a very famous or infamous, depending on who you talk to, human rights lawyer in Zimbabwe, Beatrice Mtetwa. And um, I was speaking at an event at the U.S. Institute of Peace with Beatrice. Uh, a, a documentary film had just come out about her, a project that I was involved in. And we were speaking at an event. And, and thereafter, I was I was on the stage with, with Beatrice and, and the filmmaker. And uh, a gentleman came up and introduced himself as Joe Trippi. And, you know, I was obviously in, in awe right away because I knew him from his uh, uh, Howard Dean campaign days. And we sort of struck up a friendship after that. And, you know, we had talked and, and discussed um, many of these issues over the years. And it came a time where um, I was at a point in my career where I, where I wanted to sort of step out and create something of, of my own and, and really run with it. And he was there to, to support it and has been uh, a big uh, a big advocate and um, supporter uh, of Vanguard Africa. And, and he's definitely a um, a committed partner of ours and, 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 and brings, as you mentioned, incredible expertise and, and worldwide, uh, experience, uh, to, to this organization, which is very young. Uh, but the people that we have involved have, have decades of, of tremendous, uh, you know, excellent experience across the world. So how of all the, um, upcoming elections and authoritarian leaders in, in, in Africa, did you pick Gambia as a country in which to focus your, your initial efforts? Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a great question. And this goes back again to, to my point about wanting to work with democratic underdogs, working on countries and, and with individuals who just don't get the support that I think they need. So countries that are often overlooked. And if you look out, if you, if you look at the course of my career and the, the countries I've tried uh, spotlighting it and the activists from which I, I've worked with, it's it's not the marquee countries like South Africa and Nigeria, and it's you know it's it's Swaziland, it's Gambia, it's it's Djibouti, it's it's Cameroon, and, and those are the situations I I, I like to to operate in and and to work in. So the Gambia, you know, these efforts went back years and years, um, both in my private personal capacity, but then also during my time at the Robert F. Kennedy Center for Justice and Human Rights, where um, we really became at that time the, the preeminent organization working on Gambian human rights issues. Um, so in my in my professional capacity, we're working mainly with uh, civil society actors in the country uh, and in the diaspora. Uh, but then in my personal capacity, working and then as part of Vanguard Africa, working with political leaders uh, in the opposition to try and form a coalition um, in the lead up to the December 2016 election. So many people don't know that, you know, we didn't come in at the at the last moment here this was years and years in the making uh many private meetings bringing people together in various cities around the u.s uh and in west africa to to try and forge this opposition unity that ultimately proved successful and, and i think as you mentioned at the very top uh, a really profound success story that i think will have ripple effects uh across the region and i think is a a really um inspiring platform from which other potential opposition leaders can can draw from uh, in other contexts. So can, can you maybe just set the scene a little bit for people who are not familiar with the Gambia, who are probably the vast majority of people listening to to this podcast, even though, you know, there, there are people who are informed, who, who care about the world. Gambia is just very far off the radar. Um, so what in, in what um, capacity or, or how did you approach uh, the Gambia. So what was the situation? What was the political situation in the Gambia like when you were coming on board to start to work with the, the opposition? Uh, so, so Gambia, as you mentioned, was completely off the radar. It's the smallest country in mainland Africa. Uh, for, for 22 years, it had been ruled by uh, a military 
uh, a military leader, Yahya Jammeh, who came to power by coup in 1994. Um, and, and really, when you're working on such a small, off-the-grid, off-the-radar country like Gambia, you have to be very strategic and pick and choose your, your, your opportunities. And the first really big opportunity for me um, that also um, worked to, to really bolster my commitment to, to working with progressive actors there was going back to the U.S. Africa Leader Summit. So in August of 2014, Yahya Jame, uh, along with 46 other heads of state from Africa, came here to Washington, D.C. Uh, and during that time, it was when I, when I started getting more involved with Gambian human rights groups operating in the diaspora. And they had organized a protest outside of his hotel, uh, the Hay Adams Hotel, which is right across from the White House. It's a five-star hotel where a lot of dictators like to stay when they come through Washington. And what happened during that time, and I was actually at this protest, is Jame's, uh, then-President Jame's security guards came out and started beating up the protesters, sending several to the hospital. Not, um, not unlike what we saw with uh, the Turkish uh, exactly. guards as well, yeah. Exactly. No, it, and that, that definitely brought back echoes uh, from the past. And it, and it was at that time where— Did you, you witness know, that? Did, did you, were you there? Did you see the, the beatings? Yeah, I was there, and I, that's what really hardened my resolve to, to see this guy go. And I actually, at the time, wrote an article like that week. I was so incensed. wrote an article that week in, in Foreign Policy magazine uh, called Mayhem at the Hay Adams about this—, this this, this public beatdown that took place in full view of the White House and these guys that that did well, that did this got away because you know, diplomatic immunity and well, no I mean, it's a little weird. I mean, it's not like there are hundreds of of people protesting, right? I mean, how many uh, how many how many sort of Gambians uh, expat Gambians were there? Yeah, so it was a it was a crowd of maybe two two dozen people. So the there's actually a pretty significant Gambian diaspora. Uh, population in the Silver Spring, Washington D.C. metro area, so they mm-hmm. usually can pull pretty pretty decent numbers. Yeah. Um, but it, it was really just a, a poignant moment for me, where you have this West African dictator exporting his human rights abuses to the United States, and he was able to get away with it. And and I wasn't going to see that happen again. And and that's when you know my resolve. How did you like react when you saw this violence break down? Was it outside the hotel or was it in the lobby? Yeah, it was directly outside the hotel, and I, I could not believe what I was watching. And then come to find out a day later, uh, President Kabila from from the Democratic Republic of of the Congo, his his security forces did the same thing. And this this one was actually caught on caught on camera. Um, so that event more than any other over the over the the years leading up to the December 2016 election really um made me commit commit to myself and 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 those activists to 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 not give up and and to continue working with them day and night to to see change in their country and i guess how then did you start to like assemble that your 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 kind of coalition or or how did you see see your role you said earlier that you tried to help assemble like a coherent political opposition but i have to imagine that it's a little sort of odd for you as like a white american outsider essentially to be kind of being seen as pulling the strings behind a a kind of a political movement that is in you know that should be sort of presented as authentically and, and natively you know gambian trying to oust their own their own political leader Right. And, and these efforts have been ongoing for, for quite a long time. And, and there were a number of, of Gambian activists and, and organizations that, you know, I joined forces with to, to help push this process along one, you know, primary organization called the Coalition for Change and, and their founder, Dr. Uh, Amadou Jane, who's actually on our advisory council at, at Vanguard Africa, had been 
leading these efforts for for many years. So it's really as in Gambia and elsewhere, you know, in, and during my entire career, and certainly now at Vanguard Africa, it's all about building camaraderie, building a broader community, working directly with local grassroots actors and voices, and in some instances, particularly with the Gambia, working with diaspora groups. Um, so really giving them a platform to amplify their voices, to amplify their influence, and and working through those partnerships. And, and quite honestly, you know, building friendships and building relationships with these people who, who are doing this incredibly brave work. And, and in so many instances, quite literally putting their lives on the line and, and those of their family and friends and colleagues to, to do this work. And that's why I take this so seriously and, and, and why I think it's so important and why I think our role um, as an organization now is, is so important, particularly in this era and in this uh, unfortunate circumstance where you have uh, a government here in the United States, for instance, which is taking an active and very um, apparent step back from from the global scene. So where were you when the election returns started rolling in in, in Gambia? So I was at my uh, makeshift command center uh, in Washington, D.C. with my, my several phones and, and computers open, tracking results as they were coming in. We had volunteers almost at every single polling station uh, relaying the voting results to me, uh, then, and then using my social media, uh, platforms to then get out that information, talking to journalists, international journalists. And, and as you may have seen, and as some of your listeners, um, might remember, may not have thought of much of it at, at the time, but, you know, in the lead up to the election, the, the, the amount of advocacy and work we were doing, a lot of it was getting, international media professionals and journalists interested in what was happening there. And it was no coincidence that in the, you know, even weeks leading up to the election in, in Gambia, you had every single major media outlet there. You had Al Jazeera in the country, you had CNN there, BBC, The Guardian, Associated Press, Reuters. And that wasn't a coincidence. That was something that we had been working on um, for many, many months leading up to that. So working with our volunteers on the ground to get election results out, start building the narrative that an opposition win was inevitable that they were going to win. And then also, you know, getting that information to these journalists who are on the ground to then incorporate into their stories. And I think that's what led to um, then President Jame conceding right away because he knew that there was no way uh, he could he could rig the election results because we had them and we could prove that the opposition uh, had won. Of course, you know, he then uh, he then recanted uh, that and, and we had the, the post-election crisis, which was ultimately resolved. But, um, you know, those efforts. Ask, I mean, that that model, I mean, is it replicable in, in a much larger country like, say, Cameroon? where you kind of have like an all hands on deck, but it's easier to have an all hands on deck because it's such a, a small country. I think it is, uh, honestly. And I think the the way in which I went about Gambia, for instance, that, that I think can be replicated elsewhere. Step one is to get a sustained international spotlight on the country. You know, uh, dictators and autocrats and strongmen thrive in the shadows and they grow strength in the darkness. And once you shed a spotlight on that, it takes away some of their power. And once you shed that spotlight on the situation, people on the ground notice and they become emboldened. When they become emboldened, they then start pushing uh, their leaders, uh, whether in government or oftentimes in the opposition, to start taking their claims and their concerns seriously and to have them come together and unite um, uh, to, to present a united challenge to these often highly entrenched 
governments. And, and I think once you have all those factors in place, you can really make a meaningful push towards change and towards democratic progress. And, and I think that's what we did in Gambia. And I think, you know, and with our partners, certainly it wasn't just us. We had many, many partners and, and first and foremost, the people on the ground doing the heavy lifting and, and doing the hard work. So all the credit was was to them. But I think certainly we can replicate that model in a country like like Cameroon. President Paul B. has never faced a united challenge before. He's never faced a situation in which there's been a sustained, uh, you know, international spotlight on on what's happening there and, and the abusive nature in which he has been able to rule over the years. Uh, and, and I think that's what's been missing in, in many of these circumstances where you have elections being brazenly stolen, you know, and, and there, there's no shortage of that from Congo, Brazzaville to Gabon most recently where, you know, it, it was very, very clearly by by all accounts um, a brazenly stolen election, and they were able to get away with it. So what's going through your mind when you see uh, the president of, of Gambia conceding on television? And it's, it's sort of like an awkward thing to, to watch for, for at least an, an American audience. You're, you're watching like the president calling on his cell phone, the, the, the opposition leader, and he's conceding. Uh, what, what, what's kind of going through your mind at that point? Uh, it was It was entirely surreal and i i you know i hadn't slept in several days and i was i was just and and the important thing here too is you know this isn't just a a, a profession for me where I, I can just turn it off and you know at 5 or 6 p.m. And, and go about my my personal life you know this i invest everything into this personally uh, emotionally and i and at that point i was just so emotionally drained like i i and i remember at that time when he was conceding a um, a, a Gambian, uh, a very prominent Gambian radio broadcaster called me to have me on her show. And we just, we just started crying. You know, I, I, it was, it was dead silence, radio silence on the air and, and us sniffling and crying saying, we cannot believe that we actually did this and we got to this point. So it was, um, and, and I'm getting emotional thinking about it now. It was just, so, it was just like a, it was such a, an entirely surreal moment and, and really a highlight for me professionally but but like i said personally because i i really do take this personally in in many different ways and it, and it's just like so rare in in that context for a kind of president for life to actually concede and an election well it turns out of course though he he unconceded right he did unconcede but i think importantly there is when the leaders within the region really stood up and really safeguarded democracy in the Gambia. And I think that's why I'm so bullish on ECOWAS and the democratic progress that's taking place in West Africa. I think if, if you know, and I think we have to remind ourselves, we talk so much about democratic backsliding and, and human rights abuses that are taking place and the need to hold leaders accountable, but we also need to highlight the positive that's happening. And I think the regional, you know, cohesion behind safeguarding the, the democratic renewal in the Gambia was was entirely paramount. And it was, you know, it goes back to, you know, Tabo and Becky's, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, imperative for African solutions to, to African problems. And I think this was a prime example of that and really, uh, really portends well for, for the future uh, of the region. So, uh, so ECOWAS is the Economic Community of West African State, which is the regional group which threatened uh, pretty heavy sanctions and even like threatened intervention uh, if uh, if the president of Gambia did not actually concede and, and leave the country. And so that was kind of the pivotal kind of diplomatic turning point that finally convinced him to accept the election results. Absolutely. And I, and I think that there were some very powerful moments and images from that, namely – 
you know, President Mahama or former President Mahama from Ghana, who had just lost an election himself, going to Banjul to 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 personally lobby Jame to to step down from power. Uh, and then you also had, you know, President Buhari and President Johnson Sirleaf in the country. And I think that these are, these just, are the presidents of, of Nigeria and, and Liberia, respectively, two, you know, uh, democracies in the region. Nigeria, right. of course, being like the largest country in the region and a democracy that recently went through a transfer of power uh, as well from one party to another, which is like a really kind of pivotal moment. Right. And I, and I think that was incredibly powerful. And, and now perhaps, you know, one can make the argument with the exception of Togo, every single leader uh, in West Africa has now been democratically elected. And What's the as matter you, with Togo? Well, Togo, interestingly, so when, when Jame was in power in the Gambia, so when we're talking about the progress that the region has made, last year there was uh, uh, a resolution put forth by ECOWAS leaders to have um, a mandated two-term limit for, for heads of state. And Togo and Gambia under Yaya Jame were the only two countries to... to mm-hmm. um, to nix that. And then unfortunately it fell by the wayside. Um, but Togo, again, if, if you want to talk about Togo, that's another country in which rampant human rights abuses continue to take place. And there's just no, there's no advocacy. There's no public advocacy. There's no spotlight on what's happening there. Um, and I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think that the language divide certainly plays into that, but again, another situation that I think, what's the um, language divide. So again, this is actually, you're, I'm proving your point. I study these issues like very closely. I know not a thing about Togo. I'm, I'm looking at, at a map right now of the region. I'm like, yeah, I know a little bit about that country or that guy, that country. I, Togo is, is just a, a blank spot for me. I probably would not even be able to distinguish it from Benin on a map. There, there are two <laughs> countries next to each other. I, I'm, you know, I'm being honest, even though I like, I, I, I you know, I, I study this stuff every day. It just, it's totally off my radar. Yeah, I mean, so so Togo has been ruled by one family, literally one family, since since their independence from France. Um, and, and to answer your question about the language divide, it's it's the it's a French speaking country, so francophone country. Um, so it doesn't get a lot of attention or press uh, in the in the Western media in, in the U.S. And Ghana next to it's an anglophone country for the exactly. For the so so countries like Ghana, Sierra Leone, Liberia, even Gambia that we were able to work on to a certain extent, they get a bit of attention because it's easily transferable. You know, and mm. and, and Western or U.S. journalists can go there and report and 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 you know get their stories published in in U.S. Um, media. But with with these francophone countries, it's it's incredibly difficult to sort of crack that crack that bear with with uh with Cameroon we've had some success in recent weeks and i think um you know many people have commented you know wow you know we really started to see Cameroon generate some interest internationally and i think again that's a testament to the the advocacy work that needs to be done and that we're trying so hard uh trying so hard to do that's interesting. So, but also, you know, with Cameron, I mean, it's just like such a, a bigger country. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a, a pretty booming economy. So there, there's at least some, you know, there, there, there's like some familiarity, at least passing familiarity. Like people, you know, know a, a little bit about Cameroon if they know a little bit about the world. People don't know a little bit about Togo if they know a little right. bit about the world. And Cameroon too, of course, you have Chantal Bia, whom everybody should know. And of course, yeah. the, you know, the, the Lions, their soccer team, which is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's a bit different. They're always in the World Cup. Oh, yeah. And they're, they're very good too. Um, well, they Jeffrey, work, thank you. They need to work on their defense and get a goalkeeper, though. But other than that, you know, there there is oh, a yeah. There you go. Just like a uh, white American man to be telling. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, well, well, thank you, thank you, Jeffrey. This is great. Anything else we should look out for you in in the in the, the near future besides Cameroon? 
Uh, Cameroon, definitely we'll, we'll continue our work there and obviously holding the new leadership uh, in the Gambia uh, accountable. Um, I, I actually I, did want to ask you, I'm sorry, have you, had you been to the Gambia since? So I have had plans twice to, to get out there, but for various reasons that has not worked out. But plans are in the works and we should be out there very soon, very keen to, to engage with the, the new democratic government there. But then also, like I said, very importantly is, is holding them accountable. You know, they, they have uh, a huge... Uh, huge task uh, ahead. They they need the help, and I think they have the right intentions. But certainly, um, lots of work left to be done there. Also, um, just to put on your radar and perhaps your listeners, some very important elections uh, coming up, uh, particularly in August uh, in Kenya on August eighth, which is uh, a situation we're tracking very closely, and in Liberia in October. I think will two will be two very big. Uh, elections to watch out for. Uh, I would I would put Rwanda in that category, but we already know what the result is going to be there for 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 a number of reasons. He'll win with ninety percent of the vote, probably. He'll win with probably more than that. <laughs> um, well, Jeffrey, thank you. Thanks for your time. This was this was interesting and helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much to Jeff. Thank you all for listening. That was great. Super interesting. Love learning about his line of work. Um, I wanted to make one quick announcement before I sign off. So I get a lot of emails from you asking me uh, about career advice. There are a significant number of you, not every one of you, but many of you who are in transitional phases in your life or in your careers, or perhaps are young professionals and want some career advice. And you email me asking your advice. And I find that totally flattering. Thank you for thinking that I I can dispense such advice and having such faith in me. I, I really appreciate that. But I wanted to do something a little more systematic and try to answer your questions in a, a better way and frankly, give you better advice. So I am scheduling a conference call basically a podcast episode that you can participate in with two people who have had really interesting careers in international affairs, varied careers in international affairs, one of whom I can announce is Alana Sheikh, who is actually a professional advice giver. She's a career coach. She has lived and worked around the world and has worked in the international development space in various capacities for many years, and she has agreed to answer some of your questions in a podcast episode. Essentially, I will set up a a Skype conference call, and anyone who would like to can join in and participate and ask questions. I'll announce a date and time later. If you cannot make that call, you can send me your question. I will ask that to the panel. If you're interested in learning more about this or want email updates about where this panel is headed and and the precise dates and times, send me an email via the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com, and I will put you on this kind of career panel mailing list. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.